Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by Empty Faces, a monthly membership that spins dark tales for you to investigate through clues, codes, and ciphers. Each box includes items to aid your investigation, correspondence to interpret, objects to explore, and messages to analyze. Nothing is as it seems. Like a ghost hunter, you must look closely at all the materials and think outside the box. Listeners can get 10% off their first adventure with Empty Faces using the code TOLD. Just visit EmptyFaces.com to sign up and use the promo code TOLD. Again, that code is T-O-L-D. Let them know Otis sent you. Before you know it, you'll be knee-deep in mystery. I'll be back after tonight's first story to tell you a little more about Empty Faces. Until then, stay tuned. The show is about to begin. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, 
Episode 13, I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about vanishing acts, haunted highways, eerie executions, and unsettling scarecrows. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which includes the first two stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. And thank you for your support. It's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn the lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first tale of terror this evening, from Daniel Dubois, is entitled The Reappearance of Carrie May. Looking back, I remember how all of my family's summer barbecues went the same way. There'd be the initial bustle of uncles and aunts arriving with kids, clicking paper bags full of liquor and lopsided foil trays of macaroni and lasagna. First drinks were poured, meat was thrown on the grill, and cackles followed light gossip in the crowded kitchen. We ate, parents drank. And as the afternoon progressed, all of the cousins overcame their shyness and darted around the open backyard. The older crowd took up residence in plastic-woven chairs with cups in hand. As they ventured deeper down into their drinks, so too did the light shatter from earlier in the afternoon descend into more serious subjects. It wasn't until I had reached eleven or twelve years old that I began to recognize the recurrence of the name Carrie May, uttered from the semicircle of elders across the lawn. I asked my mom about who she was while driving home from a barbecue one afternoon. She just said, I'll tell you when you're older. I'm fifteen now, and the grown-ups still whisper when I pass by their drinking circle if Carrie May is the topic of a conversation. Little do they know that I've done a little bit of sleuthing on my own, through equal parts hearsay, courtesy of older cousins, and eavesdropping. I've managed since to piece together a general account of what happened to my distant cousin, Carrie May, and her family. After the fact, I can understand why my mother and all the other grown-ups chose to keep their story from us kids. It is, to this day, the scariest thing I have ever or never heard. It happened in a little town on the north shore of Massachusetts called Middletown, where Carrie May and her parents, my aunt and uncle, lived. Middleton was still pretty undeveloped in the mid-80s. Young couples looking to start a family often opted for the paved and well-lit streets of neighboring Danvers or Salem over the pocked dirt roads of Middleton. But my Uncle Stephen and Aunt Lena, Aunt Carrie May's parents, were known for being somewhat bohemian. They were both painters who relished the unfettered wilderness that the small wooded town had to offer. The family fit in there well, Carrie May grew up surrounded by the likes of artists, painters, and eccentrics who called that small stretch of forest home. On the evening that Carrie May went missing, her family was visiting a public patch of garden rented by one of her father's friends. This particular field was divided into dozens of small plots, 
where the town citizens could grow anything from cucumbers to black-eyed Susans. Their friend's plot bordered the forest surrounding the field. While the parents sat in rickety chairs among the watermelons, the kids darted in and out of trees and played hide-and-seek. At one point in the evening, the other kids in the group came back to their parents, saying that they couldn't find Carrie May. They'd been playing a game of hide-and-seek, and even though the game had been over for twenty minutes, Carrie May was still nowhere in sight. At first, my aunt and uncle weren't that alarmed, the elder name from where they sat, expecting her to come running from the woods when she heard their voices. Carrie May was a playful and imaginative girl, but she was always well-behaved. That's why my Uncle Stephen and Aunt Lena started to get worried after only a few minutes of getting no answer from their calls into the woods. As the sun began to set, flashlights were retrieved from cars and grown-ups in the group fanned out into the surrounding woods to search for Carrie May. They called her name until nine o'clock or so. After that, they called the cops. Days went by. Weeks. All the while, police officers and volunteers from Middleton and neighboring towns combed the woods, going miles into the New England forests. Yet, despite the fervor of the search, not so much as a shoelace was recovered. After one month of flyers, false tips, the whir of helicopter blades, and television appearances, my aunt and uncle first began to consider the possibility that they would never see Carrie May again. But then, something extraordinary happened. Contrary to all statistics for missing children, kidnappings, and the rule of the first 48 hours, Carrie May was found. Or, more accurately, she just showed up. One day, roughly five weeks after her disappearance, she emerged naked, bruised, and scratched from the woods at the exact spot that she had entered from. No one was at the gardening plot at the time, as it was five o'clock in the morning, so she walked barefoot across the misty field and down the country road into town. Angus McLeod, a fry cook at N&J Donuts, was the first one to spot her. He called the police who picked her up and brought her to the station. By 7.30, there'd been a tearful reunion between Carrie May, Uncle Stephen, and Aunt Lena. By 9 o'clock, the news of Carrie May's return had trickled through the neighborhood and was spilling over into neighboring towns. 12 o'clock saw the long driveway to their home jammed with vans from every newspaper and television station on the North Shore, and by dinner time, all of Essex County was in celebration for the darling 13-year-old who had finally come home. It was like a bad dream, Aunt Lena whimpered into a Channel 5 microphone. A bad dream that I couldn't wake up from. But today, I woke up. And so it seemed to that small pocket of Massachusetts in the dog days of 1985, like some great nightmare had hovered for a spell over their town, only to move on, saving its worst for another time and another place. The story of Carrie May was not so simple and joyous as all the headlines and news anchors led the country's residents to believe. However... While vast coverage was devoted to Carrie May's initial reappearance, virtually no attention was given to the events which ensued weeks later, after all of the fanfare had died down. By that time, 
Carrie May had had countless interviews with investigators and child psychiatrists regarding her disappearance. Each of these efforts to discover what actually happened was discouraged, however, by Carrie May's persistent reply, I don't remember anything. Making no headway, the professionals backed off, but encouraged my Aunt Lena and Uncle Stephen to monitor Carrie May carefully for any unusual behavior. Yeah, 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 was their typical bohemian reply. They were just happy to have their daughter back. Carrie May was home. What was there to worry about? And, indeed, for the first few weeks after Carrie May's return, there did seem to be little need for concern. Back home in her own room, Carrie May quickly slid back into the old grooves of life, as usual. She strung and beat at another dream catcher, furishly chopped up fashion magazines for a new collage, played Carol King's tapestry until the needle was shot, and ate tomato and mayonnaise sandwiches by the stack, with a side of cherry coke, of course. My Uncle Stephen hired a few extra hands at his house painting company so that he could take some time off. The three of them made a trip up to Kenobi Lake Park, where Carrie Mae rode the Cannonball roller coaster a total of eight times in two hours, breaking her own record. Within a two-week period, they ate lobster rolls and french fries at the clam box three times, and they caught so many fireflies in the evenings that Aunt Lena guessed they could light Fenway Park with them. It truly seemed that life had returned to normal for the small family. Unfortunately for Carrie Mae, Uncle Stephen, and Aunt Lena, those two happy weeks would prove to be no more than the eye of the storm. Something truly sinister lay on the horizon, and it came for a visit about three weeks after Carrie Mae's return. On the night it happened, Carrie Mae woke her parents up, saying that she couldn't sleep because of a noise in her bedroom. When asked what it sounded like, she said it was a sort of rumbling or grinding. My aunt and uncle went to her room, switched on the light, checked the corners and the closets. They listened, too, but after a minute of hearing and seeing nothing out of the ordinary, they told Carrie Mae that she could sleep with them that night. They'd take a closer look at things in the morning. So all three of them went to bed and were soon asleep. In the very early morning, my Aunt Lena woke up to go to the bathroom. It was down the hall on the left just past Carrie Mae's room. After using the toilet, she was passing Carrie Mae's room when something caught her eye at the window. From the door, she could see Carrie Mae's window, which was open as it had been earlier that night. Nothing unusual there. What was unusual... What made my aunt's blood suddenly run cold was the flap of torn screen hanging down into the room. Slowly, she padded past the threshold over the floorboards over to the window. Reaching down and picking up the flap of screen, she noticed that the edges were gnarled and frayed as if it had been sawed through with a blunt instrument. With a chill she realized that this was likely the sound that Carrie Mae had heard, the cutting of the screen. As she examined it, she suddenly noticed something long and dark lying on the floor beneath the window. Picking it up, she noticed its lightness, how it was smooth on one side but curled and grimy on the other. One end of it was jagged as if it had broken off of something. The other was a fine point with a sharp edge running down one side. A bone, she thought. 
looking back and forth from the object to the window screen, she had felt the material before, felt it every day of her life. No, not a bone. It's a... It's a... It was then, just as she came to the sickening realization of what had been used to open the screen that she heard it. A wet, guttural growl. She turned quickly to her left, expecting to find an animal. What she saw instead made the room spin. There, in the corner, lit partially by moonlight, stood a woman. But not just any woman. It was the most horrifying creature, animal, or man she had ever seen. The mere sight of it made her sick with revulsion and terror. It was completely emaciated. A filthy floral dress hung loosely from its shoulders. Its neck barely looked able to support the large head covered by the great wild and greasy nest of dark hair. Strands shot out in rays all around its skeletal face. Its wide, pale eyes, hid back in two caves within the skull, looked drugged, frantic, desperate, and even a bit mirthful. They hung above a thin, carved sliver of a mouth which seemed both to smirk and scowl, revealing flashes of black, rotted teeth. Bloody scratches and splotches of mud, dirt, and filth speckled its twig-legged limbs. It had no shoes on. Both feet were black with earth and brown, claw-like toenails dug into the floor where it stood. The nails on its hands were easily the length of fingers from which they grew. In a flitting observation, it reminded Aunt Lena of the sloths she had once seen at the zoo. Nine great black curls hung from ten grimy fingers. The tenth, of course... Aunt Lena held in her own hand. It belonged to the left index. Upon seeing the cracked stump where it had once been, she dropped it to the floor. The thing raised its right arm and pointed a dagger nail at Carrie May's empty bed. It growled again, only this time Aunt Lena realized it wasn't a growl at all. It was a word. Girl. Girl. Where's the girl? As it spoke, drool dribbled from its cracked lips from between jagged black teeth. Strings of it glistened in the moonlight and pooled onto the ends of its massive toenails. Some of it hung from the dark slender chin before stringing down under the front of its dress. While watching the spittle roll down past the bumps of its tiny breasts, Aunt Lena came to another horrifying realization. She had seen that pattern before. Purple, flower, yellow, flower, purple, flower, yellow, flower. T.J. Maxx. Back to school sale. Dear God, I bought that dress. It's Carrie May's dress. The thing lurched forward now with something clutched in its left hand. Something that had been hidden in the darkness. A sack. A giant, coarse, ancient-looking burlap sack with its wide, dark mouth gaping open. As the creature clicked forward on its gnarled toenails, the great sack hissed across the floorboards at its side. As it advanced, the mouth tightened from a bitter scowl 
into a wide black grin, a grin denoting an epiphany. You'll do. You'll do. You'll do. It gargled and practically giggled as it motioned with its free hand toward the open sack. Get in. Get in. Get in. Its eyes went wide, wider than any eyes Aunt Lena had seen before. Its wet black mouth opened and shut in a gnashing grit as it began to make clumsy swipes at my aunt with its right hand. You'll do. Get in. It barked, all in one garbled word. You'll do. Get in. At this point, Aunt Lena found her vocal cords, which up until that point had been stifled with pure terror. Her survival instincts loosened the screams that had been mounting in her chest since seeing that flap of torn screen. She screamed with all of the delirium and abandon of a creature caught in the claws of death. Backed up against the wall behind her, she quickly scuttled sideways toward the doorway and dashed, screeching down the hall toward her bedroom. My Uncle Stephen was already out of bed. He followed my aunt's shaking finger back toward Carrie Mae's bedroom, only now to find gauzy curtains fluttering in the wind and moonlight. At the window, he could just make out a dark, thin form retreating to the forest's edge. Don saw many of the same officers who had calmed and questioned Carrie Mae three weeks before combing the property, kicking through tall grass and brush with flashlights. Not far from where Uncle Stephen had seen it enter the woods, officers found what looked like a rudimentary campsite. The bones and viscera of squirrels sat in a pile by the leaf-pine needles. Mattress. A dugout latrine sat ten paces from the bed. And under a log near the squirrel remains, officers recovered soggy, moldering newspapers chronicling the return of Carrie May. The entire site had a direct view of Carrie May's bedroom window. It was quickly surmised by everyone at the scene that the woman who had camped out in the woods near the house for some time before attempting to abduct Carrie May, maybe a week, perhaps more. Police obtained a sketch of the woman based off of my Aunt Lena's account of that night. It was distributed throughout the county's police departments, the sketch was also used in one final interview with Carrie May following the incident at the house. Carrie May, who had been surprisingly calm during the whole event, took one look at the sketch of the woman and began to shake uncontrollably. She had a fit bordering on epileptic there in the office of the Middleton police chief. While screaming, she attempted to rip her own skin off with her fingernails, screeching, Like this! She did it like this. A team of psychiatrists later theorized that Carrie May's nervous abduction had been so traumatic that she had repressed it, leaving no conscious memory of her time in the woods. Upon seeing a portrait of her abductor, however, all those memories came rushing back, overloading her conscious mind, frying it with madness. She left the police department that day on a stretcher, her hands and feet bound by leather straps, Rumor has it that she began to laugh uncontrollably in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. She has lived at McLean Psychiatric Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, ever since. The North Shore Snatcher, as she came to be called in local folklore, was never found. 
It's 2016 now, and for all I know, she's dead. Or perhaps she's moved on to woods in some other county, some other state. Who knows? Truth is, she doesn't even need to be alive or present to exist. Like something as traumatic as a shark attack or a plane crash, the memory of what happened to Carrie May and her family echoes down the years so that even decades later the fear remains fresh. So odd and disturbing was the event that the older folks are still left glued to their chairs at summer barbecues, brooding over their drinks and trying to piece it all together. All the while, they keep a watchful eye on that border where the lawn ends and the woods begin. Occasionally, a younger cousin will dash in among the trees, only to hear behind them, Hey! Get out of there! From their parents. You don't know what's in there. The little culprit will emerge from the bushes, stomping its feet in protest and whining. Why not? There's no poison ivy around here. But by that point, the parents, looking past the child into the gloom beyond the birches, more to themselves than to anyone else, they'll mutter, It ain't the poison ivy I'm worried about. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed the reappearance of Carrie Mae by Daniel Dubois. Now, I know every family has their secrets and dark pasts, but that tale took it to a whole new level. Speaking of secrets, up next we've got a mysterious tale from author Blood Empress about a simple drive turned devilish. But first, I'd like to tell you a bit more about today's sponsor, Empty Faces, and what makes it so unique. You see, Empty Faces is my newest obsession. You become a character inside the story and try to stop an unspeakable evil like you're a detective or paranormal investigator. It's interactive, and man, is it detailed. It feels real. Even the UPS driver got a little freaked out. It's a monthly subscription, so each month, more clues, items, and correspondence are delivered to you, which build up to a thrilling conclusion. It's like a TV show that you can touch. My kit this month, for example, contained a bunch of cool props, including real sage, written clues, and a protective pendant. It's also lifelike. My cats won't even go near it. (laughs) Imagine that. You can do empty faces with friends for a game night, or the best part yet, you can join their online community to swap theories and ideas with people just like you. 
You've just got to try this. It's an amazing feature. Empty Faces also has online resources to help keep you on track and where you can find helpful hints. A word of warning. This service is not for the faint of heart. It's scary. It's creepy. But it's also a lot of fun. More people are joining every day, so get in early. They only accept 200 new members a day, so visit EmptyFaces.com today and get started. As a reminder, my listeners will all get 10% off their first box with the promo code TOLD. Once more, that code is TOLD, spelled T-O-L-D. So what are you waiting for? Visit EmptyFaces.com today and find out if you've got what it takes to stop the evil. Thanks for your support of this show and our sponsor. Now, without further ado, we've got another terrifying tale for you. So grab your safety blanket and snuggle up. Things are about to get spooky. Our second story this evening is entitled Grim Future by creepypasta author Blood Empress. I can't remember. The other car came out of nowhere. Connor will relay mechanically in his disassociated state. Stitching together his fragmented memories for the police report after the accident. There at the scene of the crash, glancing at each piece of scattered shrapnel, reflecting his broken thoughts. The lights from the cruisers, ambulances, and nosy rubberneckers will cause his head to throb adding to the chaos of his universe. Eventually, the shock will pass, and he will collapse to his knees on the cove pavement in agony, grief overwhelming him. One vision will burn into his psyche, silencing the growing cacophony of his own thoughts, a seemingly innocuous item which will fester in the back of his mind until he ended his own life many years later, a bright yellow bumper sticker. Earlier that evening, Connor was enjoying a late, quiet autumn drive with his wife Megan down a lonely residential road. He was admittedly dizzy from the night's festivities out with their mutual friends, but he insisted he was sober enough to take the wheel. Despite his assurances, he pressed the accelerator a bit harder than usual, hoping to make it home before any cops had a chance to complicate his evening. The couple sat in silence, entwining their hands between them, falling under the spell of the rhythmic strobe of passing streetlights. Megan kept her eyes trained out of her window at the changing leaves, squeezing her spouse's hand intermittently. Connor ogled her with a lazy, drunk smile on his face. Turning back to the road, he snapped out of his hypnotic state and slammed on the brakes in response to the quickly approaching taillights which threatened a meeting with the front of their own car. Jesus! Connor spat as he and his wife lurched forward. Where the hell this joker come from? He cried aloud. He hadn't noticed any car ahead of him when he looked out at the road only seconds before. A feeling of anger rose within him as his pleasant evening drive was interrupted by overcautiousness. Honey, you need to relax. You're going too fast. 
Megan said matter-of-factly. Yeah, well, this idiot was glowing slower than 30. There's nobody around. Speed up! Connor shouted as if the newcomers could hear him. The driver ahead showed no signs of hearing his demand and continued to cruise at a glacial pace. Connor took note of the Baby on Board sticker on the bumper. The bumper, which had caved in, most likely, from another car slamming into its slow backside. He rolled his eyes, knowing his car had the same sticker on its bumper. Earlier, he protested, putting it on the car he shared with his wife, but Megan had been adamant about it. Why would you want to advertise having a kid, especially with potential kidnappers everywhere? Connor reasoned, but Megan insisted other motorists would drive more carefully around them, knowing they had a child in the car. Connor felt the collapsed bumper of the other car as evidence of the contrary. He kept this thought to himself. Connor leaned on the horn and flashed his high beams. As he did so, he noticed there was a passenger in the car. The two figures faced ahead, neither turning in their seat to acknowledge the noisy car behind them. They didn't pull over to the side. Instead, they continued at their leisurely speed. Seriously? They're going to pretend we're not here? Come on! Connor honked a few more times, but there was still no reaction from the other car. He took their indifference as insolence, which ignited his anger into rage. You're getting angry for no reason, Megan said coolly. We need to let the babysitter go. I'm not paying him for an extra hour. White-knuckling the steering wheel, Connor swerved into the oncoming lane, and before he could floor the accelerator, the car ahead merged into the other lane swiftly along with them. The car remained in front of Connor and his wife, blocking their advance. Seething, Connor yelled, What the hell's this guy's problem? It's obviously some stupid kids messing with us. Just stay calm, not give them the satisfaction of riling us up. Forget the babysitter. We'll be home shortly. Megan soothed. Connor wasn't having it. Now he was hell-bent on either passing the pair in front of them or cornering them and beating their asses. The liquor fueled his bravado. He maneuvered back to the right lane, but the car matched his path exactly. The ease of their maneuvers confirmed Connor's suspicions that the occupants of the other car had harassed other drivers before. Wanting to get away from the nuisance, Connor tried to think of another way to bypass the other car. Unfortunately, the road on which they traveled didn't branch off anywhere to get around the offending vehicle. Their only chance was at the end of the road where there was a red light at a T-intersection. However, that light was still a few miles away, and Connor's patience was wearing thin as the other car continued its deceleration. Determined to circumvent the sluggish car... Connor tried one more ploy. This time he swung to his left, cut short, and swung back to the right, hoping the other car would be caught off guard. There weren't. Instead, the other car seamlessly matched Connor's position, shifting left and abruptly changing course, back to the right lane. The way the other car matched their position struck Connor as odd. He hadn't noticed it before, but there was no hesitation from the other car. No split-second pause to consider Connor's next play. Their movements weren't that of a copycat, 
Rather, it was like they knew what he was going to do. Connor's brief feelings of confusion were overcome by his feelings of anger, and he responded to the other car's tricks in the most childish way he knew, and quickly flipped them the middle finger. He watched the shadowy figure driving the other car do the same. Again, there was no hesitation as the other driver's hand shot up along with Connor's. Wanting to test a theory, Connor allowed his hand to linger in the air longer than necessary, waiting for the unknown driver to put his hand down, but instead it stayed hovering in the air. Connor's anger subsided a bit. In its place, a sense of unease crept in. He unfolded his other fingers, twisted his hand to present an open palm to the other car, and gave a small wave. Connor, eyes widened, gawked as the silhouetted hand of the other driver slowly formed an open palm, turned to face the windshield, and waved out to the empty road ahead of them. Every motion was in harmony with Connor's actions. The mild gesture sent a ripple of fear down Connor's spine. He yanked his hand back to the steering wheel and observed the other driver do the same. Did you just see that? Connor flinched at the edge of panic in his voice. You waving at the guy you've been bitching about for the last ten minutes? Yeah, I, I was there for that. Sarcasm tinted her voice. No, there's something weird going on. He couldn't take his eyes off the mysterious figure. He's just messing with you. No, I'm not sure what's going on, but it's as if he knows what I'm going to do. I don't think we should be anywhere near this guy anymore. Connor's eyes darted around the empty road, hoping for some signs of life to provide help, or at least comfort, but it was only him, his wife, and the couple in the dented vehicle ahead of them. Megan noticed nothing, so Connor tried to push his worry aside, but he couldn't shake the feeling. They continued driving in silence. Connor's hands tightened their grip on the wheel, straining the skin along his knuckles. The tension increased with every passing minute until the quiet was cut short by the sound of Megan's phone ringing, which caused Connor to jump in his seat. Without turning, he felt her eyes on him, the same eyes she'd penetrated him with whenever he was overreacting. She reached into her bag and produced the phone. The phone pressed to her ear and... Connor gaped at the passenger of the other car, who also put something to their ear. He was certain now that he wasn't hallucinating everything. The anonymous pair were somehow mirroring Connor and his wife. Megan hung up and mentioned something about the babysitter, but Connor was too engrossed with the occupants in the other car to hear what she was saying. Fear began to sink in, thinking about whoever or whatever was in the other car. Both cars drove slowly for the remaining few miles of the road. A million things ran through Connor's mind. He worried that the pair in the other car were sociopaths, part of a cult, possibly gang members, and that him and his wife were involved in some unnerving gang initiation. He wanted to turn around, but that would mean driving miles back the way they came, and he was afraid the shady couple would turn to follow them, and that was worse than having them lead. Mercifully, they came around a bend which brought them to the red light at the T-intersection. Both cars stopped to wait for the light to change. When the light slipped to green, nothing happened. 
Connor and Megan waited for the other car's turn signal, but it never came. The two shadows stared ahead at the empty intersection, idling at the light, as if to dare Connor to give way first. He gnawed on his cheek, hoping the other couple would just speed off and that whatever was going on was just some horrible practical joke, but they didn't budge. Why aren't they moving? The light is green. Megan asked her husband, confused. A few more seconds of the standoff, and Connor steeled himself to put a stop to whatever it was the dark couple was trying to do. Connor cautiously stretched a hand into the back seat, fearing he might spook the shadow couple if he moved too quickly, and then snatched the ice scraper from the floor. It was a poor excuse for a weapon, but he needed a defense in case the other couple was dangerous, and with every second that passed, Connor became more convinced that they were. Mags, I need you to stay in the car. Make sure you have 911 dialed on your phone and get into the driver's seat. In case something goes wrong, I want you to be out of here and calling them. Connor implored. Oh, Connor, you're overreacting. She tried to calm him down, but she was visibly nervous. Maybe so, but still, get into the driver's seat and put the car in reverse so you're ready to take off. She recognized the seriousness in his face and nodded. Connor took a deep breath to prepare for whatever he was going to face and opened the car door. He was surprised that nothing stirred within the other car. He stepped out into the cool night air and his wife slid into his seat. She closed the door behind him and locked it. Warily, Connor shuffled toward the driver's side of the sinister car and raised the ice scraper, clutching it tightly in both hands. His heart knocked against his ribcage. He caught an incomplete view of the front of the car, but noted it was similarly devastated as the back of the car. He licked his lips, attempting to gain strength into his voice, and barked to the occupants in the dented car, I'm not sure what your problem is, but get the hell away from... Suddenly, the car accelerated and shot across the intersection. Instead of turning, it plowed through the guardrail along the intersection. The sound of screeching metal on metal punctured through the night, and Connor watched the savage bumper and comical sticker of the other car disappear and plummet 100 feet into the vegetation below. Dumbfounded, Connor froze mid-step. A few seconds of his wife shrieking finally coaxed him back from his shock. Max, call the police right now. Tell them someone drove off the road and may need help. He whipped his head to see her nod in compliance, but she shook terribly. The ice scraper lowered, and Connor ambled across the intersection. He loitered near the part of the barrier still intact. He hesitated before inspecting the scene, not wanting to see body parts or any mess that was down there. He breathed deep and peered over the cliff. There was nothing. Connor's eyebrows furrowed in confusion. He squinted harder to scrutinize the dark underbrush, but he could discern nothing. There was no glow from the taillights, no glint of moonlight on the car's surface, and no sound of a constant blurring horn. The barrier was torn through, evidence that an object crashed through it, but that object somehow disappeared. Without glancing back, Connor called over his shoulder, Megs, the car is gone. What? She shouted back. 
There's no car. Connor spun around in time to witness an enormous semi-truck slam into the back of their car. Like a rocket, their little sedan, with his wife inside, bolted across the road. The gust of wind created by the car's speed was enough to blow him back and steal the air from his lungs. His eyes met his wife's terrified gaze for a heartbeat, her glossy green eyes wide and fearful. Then she disappeared over the edge. A moment of disbelief passed. Then Connor roared Megan's name. He stalled, reluctant to look over the edge again. He had a small glimmer of hope that once again nothing would be at the bottom of the cliff. He agonizingly dragged his gaze back to the depths, and this time a car lay there in ruin, a crushed metallic heap at the bottom of the dark pit. Before he falls into shock, unable to think coherently, before the police arrived too late to save his wife, Connor noticed one thing. The unmistakable baby on board sticker, which clung to the remnants of the collapsed bumper on the back of their car, It was unsettling to him how familiar that bumper seemed. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales... Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season, or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows, such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Empty Faces, for their support of this show. Don't forget, as a listener... You can get 10% off your first box of mysteries by using the promo code TOLD. Once more, just visit EmptyFaces.com and enter the word TOLD, that's TOLD, T-O-L-D, to let them know that Otis Gyre sent you. What have you got to lose? Except for maybe some sleep? Shit, we need sleep anyway. Ha 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 ha. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. 
program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jivey channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.